I'm I'm Jordan Wolfson, and I'm a friend to to myself. <laughs> I'm Jeremy O'Harris, and I'm a playwright. Um, yeah. From David Werner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. Yeah, but I always felt like that transgression led to transformation. Do you know what I mean? In all hero tale, right? Like go to any Jungian story, like there's this point where the hero goes through a sort of transgressive situation to come out renewed. And in a way, like we're giving that to the viewer. Blackness and brownness are refracted in more exciting ways in the visual art world because there's been more license for us to be like, you know, you see William Popel and you're like, oh, like this is the abject blackness that I feel. I'm Lucas Werner. And every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This episode's pairing, the artist Jordan Wolfson and the playwright Jeremy O'Harris. Maybe we just start by hearing a little bit how you, Jeremy, and you, Jordan, how you guys first met or what the context was, how you saw each other's work. I'm sort of curious how that came about. Did we meet online before we met IRL? Or No. We met, okay, I know how we met, was that I was with Hari, Hari Neff, and we were literally walking from that restaurant in Lucien to the Bowery Hotel, and we passed by a, a poster for Daddy, and she was like, this is the play I'm in. And this guy, Jeremy, said uh, he's a fan of your work. I go, really? And then she says, yeah, he said that if he was a contemporary artist, he would have wanted to make real violence. Yeah. And when I heard that, I was so flattered. <laughs> and then just it just stayed with me. I said, wow, that's like the, the kindest thing someone oh could say. And then I um and then I was in New York. And I asked Hari, could I come and see the play? And I went with Linda Norton and the play Daddy, and I thought it was so powerful. And I was so amazed by it. And um, then for some reason, eight days later, I'm in Los Angeles. I meet you at a party. At Chris's house. At Chris's house. And I'm like, oh, hey. And then somehow I I realized it was you, and then you realized it was me, and then we just like, snuck back into a room and just like talk. We talked and then we started watching the Michael Jackson documentary. Yeah, we started watching oh. the Michael Jackson documentary. <laughs> <laughs> Which is real violence, honestly. <laughs> That's it, yeah. At yeah. the party. At the party, yeah. Like before we went to another yeah. party. We, we were like in this very dark room at the party and there was like this one, one of those photographs of Robert Maplethorpe of, of the female bodybuilder. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was a and sex was like, swing in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And we we're like sitting on the bed. <laughs> and then, yeah. But my question, the first one is, if that's how, I mean, assuming that's how, something that you did indeed say, what was the reason, I mean, when you think about real violence, what drew you to the piece? What was it about that that kind of made you say, okay, yeah. if I were making visual art, this would be the kind of thing, because that was divisive, that piece at the Whitney was complicated for many people, but amazing, yeah. and I'm curious what, well, I think that it's so funny because, like, I feel so naked right now because I, I was like, oh, God, like, I didn't know she told you that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's I think that what it is is that, like, I'm very into um, immersing people inside of discomfort or at least that's a part of something I'm interested in. And uh, I think that, like, what was exciting to me about the whole experience of real violence is that, like, it 
like as violent as violent as it was, it like was so actively like articulating itself as um as a fiction, like a fiction that you're like witnessing and engaging with, mm. and yet like uh, it confronted you with like an um with the like inconceivability of like some fictions, right? And I and I liked how like for some people like it's like inconceivable that like you would have to witness this fiction, even though like it's a fiction that like we see in a lot of different forms in a lot of different places. And I don't know, it's just, it's the kind of for me what makes art exciting are things that are have so much rigor in them that like you'll you have to pick them apart for days and hours. And the rigor is in all these these different forms of labor. And so I don't know, I got really excited by that. What did you think of Jordan act? I mean, that was one of the things that drew me in is to see Jordan. You know, you could have done that piece, Real Violence, with an act, you know, with a sort of like obviously violent personality as yes. someone who sort of like really presents that way. But of course, Jordan doesn't really present as a sort of a bat-wielding no. killer. No. <laughs> um, but he does have sociopathy in his eyes, which I'm into. <laughs> And what about you, Jordan? What when you talked about because we talked about the play, and you were talking about different aspects of it that really moved you, and I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that. So I wanted to go to the play mostly to support Hari, and and I was just curious about about Jeremy, and I went to the play, and in, if I may say so myself, if I was a playwright. <laughs> this is what I would want to be oh doing. And I thought, oh, oh my God, genius. I just thought, so brilliant. And there was like formal, like formal broad strokes, texture. It was this use of pop that I really felt like I related to as like pop as a, as a gesture, pop as an abstraction. Mm -hmm. um, like, pop as a distortion where you're actually taking something that's like made and then you're putting it there and it creates a distortion around it because of its use like by using like by like the kind of colloquial use within the theater format of like a piece of music for example like Rihanna or George Michael creates a kind of vacuum of a kind of distortion for me, which had a kind of like a, a completely fresh gestalt. And it was just, it was just terrific. And I saw also in Jeremy's work, someone really dealing with form and composition in, in terms of chrono chronology, which is something that's very, very close to me as well. So one of the things, if you haven't seen Daddy, is so basically, there's this whole dream sequence. I'm almost like a nightmare sequence in the play. And it's kind of like, as Jeremy sort of was talking about real violence, it's incredibly uncomfortable, potentially like 35 minutes mm -hmm. per like section where the character completely becomes uh, introspective. And in many ways, it's the most unpleasant, incongruous part of the play. But there's no way the play could have worked without it. And it was like, it was almost as if like you were driving down a highway, the road was smooth, the road is perfect, but then in order to get where you want to go to the other highway, you have to take like this treacherous dirt road, bumpy path to get back to the other road. And that's how I felt about it when I saw it. And I just appreciated that so much. And I appreciated Jeremy's rigor. And then when I met him, I was, you know, if you meet Jeremy, you're totally dazzled by this man. He's so wonderful. So I got really, really excited about the whole thing. And I just feel like, 
I feel like with everything that like all this like virtue signaling and like politically correct stuff that I just was like, hmm. I just felt like I just wanted to see culture. Like I want to see the world and I, and I want it to be like uncensored mm-hmm. and I want to be free to comment on it and know that like the gallery space or for you, the theater space is a safe space to express ideas and they're not like actual actions against people, blah, 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 blah. And I just felt with like, hmm. Jeremy, I was like, oh my God, kindred spirits. Like yeah. this is this is what we're supposed to, this is what we're supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to be like helping someone make a moral message that like reinstates their value fears. Yeah. Yeah, and a value system that like is already codified, so codified that like it's yeah. like why, like why would yeah like we you don't learn something if it's already codified, right? Like so why engage with it? You know, there's I, I don't know I don't want to like name any things, but there are a lot of things that I'm just like why like Norman Lear said this better in '67. You know what I mean? Like why are we still like reifying something that's like already uh, like there and better and more transgressive? Mm-hmm. And I think that like it's also funny. I love that you talked about pop in my stuff because I think what I like a lot about your work is that there there's such a sense of play that like there's never there's never a feeling that like the person making this is actually a sadist which I think is something that, or like or actually someone who's like so in love with their own privilege that they're just like provoking for provocation sake there like seems to be like a real joy inside of what's happening even when it's like dark or like even titling real violence real violence when it's like a VR film it's like it's like there's already like an inlaid joke there right yeah. that like you're inviting people to laugh or like inviting people to like um move differently with this with this piece than if you had called it like uh, if you had named it after the prayer, right? Like, right. If you had named it after the prayer, then it would have been this, like, sort of, like, deeply dark, like, I think, like, a more dark thing. There would have been no play there. And the prayer was so weird that I did that, but I really remember trying to record it myself and trying to do it without it, and I was like, without it, it's just too dry. Yeah. But then I had, basically, the idea for the prayer was that it, like, cuts out in the middle, and the cutting out in the middle, the message, the formal message of cutting in the middle was like, it's not about the prayer and the prayer is not important. Yeah. That the prayer was a formal device. Yeah. That was it. And uh, and then the, the, the thing flips and flips and flips, but it's similar to like the structure of daddy that you had to get through something to get somewhere else. And I think a lot of artists like aren't willing to take that risk because they don't have enough confidence in their viewer. And I think that's why I feel connected to Jeremy, I you know I hope obviously yeah. I hope you feel the same way. One hundred percent. It's it's actually I'm 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 on this r- really intense Norman Lear kick right now, because I um they did that recent like live like you know thing and then my grandpa died like a week after that and my grandpa is such a like Archie Bunker like sort of like um. Uh, George Jefferson kind of character that I was like I was like oh let me like rewatch these shows and see what's going on and like the the it, the the rigor of his politic at that time and like the the unabashed like fearlessness of what he was saying and how he was saying it and the fact that it was popular like the most popular shows on television mm-hmm. like te- like tells me so much about like my own feelings that like audiences get things you know mm-hmm. like I'm 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 a consultant on the show called Euphoria and then like watching 
all the critics sort of like like sort of um, tiptoe around what their actual opinion is of the show inside of their review. They they're all giving non reviews because I think they're waiting to see what the internet's gonna say before they like either champion it or deny because they're they're like oh like they have to virtue signal. They're like guys, I don't know if kids can take this. Like it's really scary. Blah blah. I'm like, were you never a teenager? Like do you not remember like all the dark shit you imagined and all the dark shit you did and all the dark shit you you, you hope to do? You know what I mean? And I was like, and I was like, and these kids they're gonna eat us up. And it's not glamorizing it to say they're gonna eat it up. They're just like going to be excited that someone's like representing part of their psyche in some way, shape, or form. And I, we're in this moment now where people are afraid to even make like tepid steps towards like transgression um, because they, they there's so much fear that like um, some phantom trouble will come following mm. you. It's so crazy. It's so much fear. Everyone is sort of holding on, you know, to the seat and the table at the same time. And you're just like, yeah, but I always felt like that transgression lead to, led to transformation. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? In an all-hero tale, right? Like, go to any Jungian story, like, there's this point where the hero goes through a sort of transgressive situation to come out renewed. Exactly. And that's the viewer. But And in a way, like, we're giving that to the viewer, you know, yes. in the gallery or in the theater. Yeah. And also in music. I feel like we, we allow so much more transgression in music that I find it, that even formal transgression that we don't allow in other places, which is why I, like, go to pop music a lot. Like, I really love, like, even thinking about, like, I saw the, the Temptations musical the other day. And, um, like, even, like, you know, um, the Papa with the Rolling Stone being, like, one of their biggest hits is, like, insane. Because, like, that song has, like, a four-minute intro. Like, it's just, like, a like a funk intro. Like, which is, like, no one else had. And it was, like, dun 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 And, like, and it's this weird sort of somber tale of like a deadbeat dad and like that that a great song does not generally make or like a great pop song doesn't generally make and it was like the biggest pop song ever Mm. and it was because it felt different it felt it was new and alive and like broke the rules of like all the things that people said about songs being three minutes or songs needing to sound like whatever the Beatles were doing at the time or etc and I think about how like in I feel like in the theater especially, especially in commercial theater, like the rules around what makes a play are so set in stone that like it, even formally, that like we've forgotten that like what makes Shakespeare exciting is that like when he writes a romance, his romance like doesn't follow all the rules that like Marlowe's romances had to follow. You know what I mean? And like, because he was like an experimentalist. Like Shakespeare, like if you read Cymbeline, you're like, what the fuck is this guy doing? Like he's going back to like the Greeks and being like, and Jupiter comes in. You know, and you're like, wait, what? Jupiter just like jumps jumps out and like does a deus ex machina in the middle of this like war story you're telling. And I'm I'm missing that in like the commercial theater space. Like this like relationship to form and transgression of form that like lead us to like new epiphanies inside of the work that we're watching and like different and a different emotive journey because like if i know that like in the third act x is going to happen then like why would i like what, what am i getting out of that but a lot of people actually prefer that that uh engagement with feel safer feel yeah more the, predictable yeah if your body knows it exactly you know, then you know what to predict yeah, yeah. people are really looking with their bodies you know the question of music i wanted to hear a little bit more Jordan, before we even had this conversation, you sort of said, I want to talk about the role of music in both of your work. You know, how did you, from the video work early on, what what is the relationship to, I mean, how did you become interested in bringing pop music in? What is the sort of interruptive force? I find it very, it can be very erotic in a way. It sort of like prepares you for a different experience in the thing. It's then also, it cuts out very abruptly in your work. I'm curious why and how you kind of put that in. I think it, it's like it's like this idea of for me 
I had this intuition about like this idea of like a one to one import from the world, you know, because I feel I always feel like being an artist, like I'm like outside kind of of the world. Like we're not I'm not like part of mainstream culture. And it was like this idea of import from mainstream culture was a kind of abstraction. Mm -hmm. And then the less you do to it, the more radical you are. Like the less you change it, the more radical that import becomes because by changing it, you're adding a kind of form value to it, right? Mm -hmm. That's like giving you a permission. But like by not changing it, it actually becomes more radical. And so with, for example, Raspberry Poser or Riverboat Song, this idea of just like taking it and then when you take this thing and it kind of then sort of reflects over uh, the sort of visual content qualities of the work and then it kind of accelerates it and I don't know, kind of moves it into a kind of another uh, like frequency yeah, in a way. Yeah. And uh, that was like kind of how I was thinking of it. And it's funny that you would think that something so known can be so like transporting and so when so in daddy there's this scene if you haven't seen it where where they do the father figure song and it's just like a full on i mean you, i'd love you to talk about that i mean it's so funny cuz i you talked about being outside of mainstream culture i feel so in mainstream culture like so like embedded in it like i feel like and it might be like the sort of like s small difference in age but like growing up with a computer i've always felt like in the matrix you know and so like part of my dramaturgy has always been like oh like i want to play to feel like the internet so like uh, or how I watch, how I engage the internet. So like, there's like a private window up with just like porn playing, and then there's like uh, iTunes on, and like you know, like every every yeah. all the inputs of my day like happen inside of the place. Like like you know, it'll go from like a Fred Moten essay I'm reading in my email to that to that. So it's like they, these things can all exist in the same place because they all exist right here on my phone. So do you actually have all those things up at the same time? Oh, 100. I have. If, I don't. I didn't bring my laptop, but I have way too many things on my on my. That's so yeah. interesting. I only I, can focus on one thing at a time. Oh wow! And I can like. Like if there's porn on my computer, yeah. Like I can't. I have to like turn it off immediately <laughs> because I like need to focus on just. I'm just like one thing of focus at a time. Or maybe I'll have like Photoshop and After Effects open. Yes. But it, there's never porn up. But also at the same time, like I work in a studio and I have employees. Yes. So like I would. I'm my, I'm I would my, but also like porn is also yeah. really great. For I, I love like just like like not even like erotically watching porn. Like watching porn for like just like what's happening in the world. Like what are people into? Like I love looking at the most popular videos in like different regions. And like also like when you go going to like Berlin, like literally going to Pornhub in Berlin compared to going to Pornhub in London is so radical. What, what are the, what are like what are the differences? I mean like there's like just like a lot like it's like like Pornhub in Berlin. Berlin is a lot more violent than Pornhub in like just like, like just naturally and casually violent like in like a way and like there's like uh like the the uploads are from things like uh like like there's a, what's the name of that there's like this weird French brand of gay porn that like is like all these like um Middle Eastern men with like huge dicks just like like finding guys that are just like wandering around like the city oh, and like and then they, they like, have that in straight porn as well. They're like, oh, can I help you? Yeah. And then they just like they beat up these guys. They and beat then, them up. Yes, and then they fuck them. Oh, we it's don't like have really... that. We don't have that with girls. We don't beat them up. Oh, that's 
<laughs> yeah, don't know what you're missing. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, dark. Um, anyway, um, um, but no, I think it like allows Isn't that interesting. Well, go, let's go back to that. Let's go back to so what does that mean in the in the storyline of that? They say we meet you. Yeah, and we transgress. Yes, and then we transform. Yes, yes. I think the part of it is like you know, there's a there's. A, I mean, I think it also has to do with the fact that like there's this like deep like eroticized fear of the Middle East in 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 um all of Europe, mainland Europe, but like I think that they've they've made um they've made uh, an object of that fear, like an object that they can like fuck and an object that they can like. Um, uh, that can validate that fear, but also similar? validates the erotic. I think that's like similar to like, like in the same way that like Mel Brooks made the producers, right? And like they, in order to process the Holocaust, like he had to make the producers, and in order to process like potentially this facet of like xenophobia, right? Mm-hmm. Like on the on the victim of xenophobia, that they process it through sexuality as well 100%. and humor. Isn't yeah. that interesting? That like that like that that processing through transgressive sexuality or processing through humor are more or less, they're more or less this similar. I think it's complete. And I think that that's the thing I accidentally stumbled into with Slave Play and Daddy, which is that like, for me, it's like, it made perfect sense that like, uh, my relationship to white America is like a sort of like, one that's like based in sort of like a a, a dom sub like kink relationship. Yeah. Like it just like it has always felt that way. There's like an eroticized relationship, I think, between like um a sort of psychic erotic relationship between like the white supremacy and like black bodies that like um that like is goes unrecognized right. and becomes like very obvious when you just like put it plainly in front of you. And so, um, and for me, it was just like, that was always where my brain was because I'm someone who's like watching like a Rihanna music video and then also has like, like I'm like, oh, wh- like what porn is the most popular porn in New York this month? And then like seeing that like it's Ebony, you know? And I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. You, so you can actually find out like within regions what the most popular yes, porn is. Yes, it is psychotic. That's so interesting. Yeah, like Pornhub actually does a lot of really great like, um, d- Pornhub yeah. and OkCupid do a lot of great like- um, Data analytics. Yeah, d- data <laughs> analytics on like, people's desire like you know the fact that like on okcupid the least attractive or the least like spoken to men are asian men and the least spoken to or attractive like people are black women is like really interesting like we make now have like that statistic from okcupid like they were just like here's how people talk and like the most talked to women are like asian women which is like great it's like it's like you know the and like black men are pretty high too they're like number two or something um, high to and not spoken to. No, and spoken to. Into spoken. To. Yeah. You know, I was curious. You said Jordan that you you focus on one thing, but there's definitely the internet definitely feels present in your work, yeah. right? I mean, when you say you sort of import a pop song directly, there's this, there is it's on the backdrop of a very interruptive, often kind of you know pastiched or almost manic set of images, you know, moving, edited very, very carefully, very deliberately. I mean, you must feel like it's kind of filtering in in some way. Yeah, but it also like that's also an import, you know, like that's like importing witnessing, the import of witnessing in a way for me, and and I trust that like what I witness myself, like other people are witnessing as well. Like it's not just me who's bad, you know, <laughs> it's not just me who's curious. Yeah. So I have a lot of like trust in that and this idea of like importing. Like with Riverboat Song or this earlier piece called Favorite Things, this I, the idea of importing like an internet search and like how an internet search can become like a portrait of you and your time, Yeah. for example. 
in the editing though too? I mean, do you feel like that's witnessing, as it were, let's say, like the internet as of as the way people are engaging with it? Do you see that in the sort of edit cutting process? So the editing is 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 also is very compositional in terms of like deflecting any kind of potential message in a way that you you deflect a message to cre- to create an overall gestalt or attitude and that attitude can then be presented as a potential gesture or I would never want to use like an attitude as a message but like yeah it's like I kind of start like butting I I butt things up together in a way that like doesn't work and the sense that it doesn't work works because it's like it's idea. It's like it's like you can draw within the line. If I start just drawing within the lines, it's already inside the viewer's body. Yeah. But if I start drawing out of the lines, you start seeing the beauty of the color out of the lines, and that's kind of what the edit is as well. And the edit is like the edit has a I, the edit in in a way. I try and sort of um, access a kind of like naturalistic indifference, even. Yeah. I was gonna ask about drawing inside and outside the lines and like things that are so wrong that they work in a way. Is that what drew you to Lady Gaga at all? Because I, I just I love the fact that you like sampled art pop, like, yeah. which is like applause, psychotic. applause. Yeah, well, no, but it's yeah. from the art pop yeah, album, yeah, 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 which yeah, is like yeah. her like. Of course, no, but um, because I'm a I'm a full on little monster. I wanted to. Oh, I'm not. I'm <laughs> oh, not. Oh, I am. No, so I was like, let me try and think back of how I. was. I thought, um, yeah, it, you know, there's, if, if, I think the, the in, in the same way that you potentially saw, like, Rihanna's work, like, if you take something for literally from the present and abstract it, there's a kind of, it's also kind of radical. Rather than taking something from 20 years ago that's, like, nostalgic, mm-hmm. for example, that's, like, a little, like, I mean, easier, whatever oh, yeah. you want to say. Right, right. And so... For me, like, it's this idea of, like, I don't know, Jeremy, you chime in if you feel the same way, but, like, I feel like this idea of, like, being able to, like, okay, it's, like, not, I'm not saying this in a competitive way with anyone else but myself, and I'm not saying in a competitive way with any other artists or creatives, but, like, the idea to see it first. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by seeing it first is, like, you know, there's, for example, like, art pop and you have the song applause and it's just like in the world with us but can you see it at a remove while it's still new in its new fresh Mm. completely right present state step to the side and witness it anew witness it and that's what i'm trying to do in the work and i hope that it kind of carries that frequency as it's kind of fixed in the work for example in female figure the song applause which actually happens, I think it happens right after the first lines of the piece. And then it's actually followed by Paul Simon's Graceland. I love that. And then I took this, the Blurred Lines, a Blurred Lines remix, and I slowed it down. And then it ends with a clip of um, Leonard Cohen's Boogie Street. Yeah. Insane. And, uh, but it, it, and in the way, but it's like this kind of macro to micro thing. And it's like in the same way that like the edit doesn't work, mm. the content doesn't work, that their things are deflecting on each other. And then it's kind of potentially creating this space for the viewer to gain a kind of 
um, like in access to to themselves as new, so yeah. the viewer can potentially see the world with me. Yeah. No, I get. I mean, I that you just spoke so many things that like like articulated things that have been like impulses of mine forever that I'm just like I don't I don't know where the impulse came comes from but it's just like it like so like one of the first things I did when I went to drama school early on was I would do like certain pop songs as monologues so like the lady gaga like um disco stick I would like they, and all my teachers would always be like where's this monologue from and I was like it's it's from Lady Gaga it's like a Lady Gaga song or it was like you know whatever but like I, I but for me I was always just like no like the the thing the reason this is ubiquitous is because like it's form is perfect basically like a lot of great pop songs like have perfect form and per, like very perfect structure and like it's um and it's like there's something true about it. Like even if it's like silly or vapid, there's something true about it. And you might miss that trueness when it's like I wanna kiss you, but I'm not doing it. I might miss you, babe. It's like it's like you might miss it then. But if someone's like I wanna kiss you, right? And if I do, I might miss you, babe. It's complicated. It's stupid. Got my ass kissed by sexy Cupid. I guess he wants to play. You know, I love game. I love game. You know, whatever. So like it's like that was like my my obsession. And I think like watching seeing someone do that. Now it's also it, it makes me think of like why um why like I'm really I have this like deep sadness that like sampling has overtaken covering right like no one everyone samples and sampling is exciting and like I think you and I sample a lot in our work right um in the in the way that pop musicians do now but no one does covers anymore like just pure covers and I think when we do like these full out like um, interpolations inside of our work. It's kind of us doing a cover of like, like I, in Daddy, I got to do a George Michael cover, you know, like, and like I think about how like all of the, Aretha Franklin's best songs were all covers, or even like in Anti, like one of the strongest songs is that cover of that Tame and Paula song that mm, Rihanna yeah. does. And it's, there's something that, amazing about having uh, having five different versions of the same thing like because they each transform in these new ways and tell you something about that person's interiority even if they didn't write the thing or make the thing and I, I don't know you know it's funny when I think about all these things what you're really talking about is form that accesses the body mm -hmm. right because we want to we really want to just access form accesses the body and pop accesses the body and when you make access to the body you become present, yeah. right? And when you become present, you see things new or you see things like, like when I meditate, sometimes when I know like I have a good meditation is I open my eyes and I look at my hands and they don't look familiar to me, the yeah. palms of my hands. And when you suddenly get to see the world unfamiliar mm. through access. Yeah. Um, and then with through being something unfamiliar, you you get access and then you see things like in a way, uh, I, I can't even put it into words, but it's just like. But it's so interesting that you're interested in the body because your work is also so post-human. You know what I mean? Like it's like you have this like sort of post-humanism that sort of like translates throughout. You know, you you have this um, interest in dolls and this interest in like um, tech. You know, in this way that like um, is so out of the body. Um, so I wonder, like, if like as someone as someone who also has the same investment in bodies, right? Like the mm -hmm. reason I everyone's always like, why write plays? I'm like, because like when you write a movie, like there's no body, like you know, like the body is like um, yeah. is like filtered through six cameras, you know, or six lenses, like, and then like, and I'm far away from the bodies that like watch it. But when I when I do my plays, like I'm literally in the audience almost every show because I get off on like bodies moving differently or responding differently with me, and watching the bodies on stage do it differently and change and like activate in new ways. So like why 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 um 
like why objects and not like bodies? Like, why not be a choreographer? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I was thinking that the you know your the effect on the body of the audience is ext- it's almost like these tools are being developed by you, whether it's colored sculpture or female figure, to sort of have an intense bodily effect by resisting traditional meaning, which I think is something yeah. we've talked about too. Resisting trying to reconstruct a narrative or address something a virtue signal, you end up having a very visceral, immediate effect on the person who's seeing it. I mean, that's sort of what that those works feel like. The thing I always had a pro- uh, not a problem with, but like uh, observationally, that I was like, the gallery is a stage that the viewer gets to walk onto, mm. and I always thought about that. And then when I think about when I was in your play, when I was in Daddy, I was like, isn't this amazing? That here is this contrived event, completely contrived, mm. fabricated event we're watching, lit, and there's a pool and a house and. We all believe it. We're all in it. And I said, isn't that fabulous that we can have that part of our human experience, that we can get hacked Mm -hmm. by narrative, hacked by form? And I thought that was, I think that's an amazing part of the human experience is that how, like, this idea of representation, like how we are kind of, like, um, hacked by representation is, like, really compelling. It's wild. I keep, I keep, I had this like sort of like, like this like thing that was like, representation doesn't matter. Like, I loved saying that because I felt it was like, it was like, I hated people telling me that like I had to like something just because like there were black people in it. And I was like, I, but that's not, like, I feel more represented than I am love in a weird way. Like, I, I'm like, I am Tilda Swinton eating the prawn. Um, but then I saw like the Spider Man movie and I was like literally hacked by that movie. And I was like, representation does matter. <laughs> but I didn't even know what it meant at the time. But I think about, I think about how like, uh, again, it's structure. It's like Annie Annie Baker has this great monologue in the Antipodes about um, about like the, in the Antipodes. It's like a play that takes place in a writer's room. It's really phenomenal. Um, she's amazing. She's amazing. I love Annie Baker. Um, like <laughs> she's like she's my. I like I have like you know like we all have like that one like person that people are like that that's your writer crush or that's your artist crush. And you're like yeah like I know it's weird but like <laughs> I stand Annie Baker. Um, but she's fucking cool. But anyway, she has this um, plays all around this writer's table and they um, are constantly talking about like what makes a story and like how a story works. And there is a whole part where they talk about um, this guy is like addicted to writing stories because it's like. Um, it's like the earliest form of of like like rewiring tech, technical rewiring and how like basically like uh, great writers know how to like every time they go, put pen to paper how to hit that part that part and that part in your brain so that you'll feel the things huh. and I I I think that is kind of because I feel like when I'm writing I um I know immediately if something works or doesn't work because like. I'll get the chill or I'll start to cry or I'll do it. And if I don't, then I'm like, oh, I need to rewrite that scene. And it doesn't matter how many times someone tells me I need to change it because they don't like it or they don't understand it. I if if I felt yes. it, I know it yes. I know it's real. You no, know, yes. And that's the difference. that's the difference between a professional and an amateur for me, is that we trust the way we see. And when you see my work or when you see Jeremy's work, you're getting a chance to see the way we see. When you see like a Luke Toyman's painting or like a Wolfgang Tillman's photograph or a Tino Seagal performance, you get a chance to see the way that artist sees. Yeah. And you're fucking lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And it's beautiful. And it's like when, when the artist can kind of open that space up and sort of let the world push through them and then it kind of, it basically remains as a kind of freeze that then the the viewer can then re-enter over and over and over again. Yeah. 
you know, talking about that and hearing about Annie Baker and Tyrone's, I was curious if you guys would talk a little bit about influences. I mean, sort of like some of the early reading that you did that yeah. sort of gets you to the place where you are, sort of, yeah. I mean, a d disruptive reading, whatever it is. I'd be very curious to hear about some of those early inspirations, influences. Yeah. I mean, I was really, um, like, in, because I was raised by, like, a single mom who, like, worked a lot, I um, ended up being, a, like, sort of a latchkey kid, you know? So I was in this small town in Virginia, and I got to, like, my, and my mom, like, had been told at a young age that I was, like, um, advanced. So, like, basically any impulse I had, she would just be like, well, yeah, I mean, they say that that's help smart kids, you know? Um, and the thing that I used to have to do when I was in trouble was, like, she'd make me read books when I was young. So, like, I, like, became, like, because at a certain point it stopped being a punishment. It became, like, <laughs> fun. Um, it's probably why I have a weird relationship to punishment now. Um, but uh, she was, like, um she would let me go to the movie store and just get whatever movie I wanted. So I got really obsessed with like the Criterion section inside of the movie store and uh, the Blockbuster and then also just like anything that was like international because like again like when you're 12 like watching a Bertolucci film is like both like informative and also porn. You know what I mean? So you're like but you can get away with that one. Like your mom you're like oh no mom it's Last Tango in Paris. It's famous. It's not like a pornographic film. Um, and so can I interrupt and just tell you guys my go-to porn as a, as a kid was Trading Places. What's Trading Places? The movie with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. <laughs> What is it about? Because um, I'm, I'm assuming they trade places somehow racially. They trade places racially, and it's like this crazy race story. And I was obsessed with it, and it was my favorite movie when I was a kid. You haven't seen it? I've never seen. Oh it. Oh my god! Yeah, and I it's wanna... so funny because I keep getting asked to write these like race trading movies now. You have to see. Yeah, it. everyone is really into that now. But oh, there's a scene uh, of who's that actress who's married to um, the guy who made Waiting for Guffman. Jamie Lee Curtis. So Jamie Lee Curtis is in it, and she she plays a prostitute, and there's this part where she changes in front of Dan Aykroyd. Like, she he, she basically, he's, like, down and out, and she, like, brings him to her house, and she gets naked and changes in front of him, and that was, like, that was, like, the most titillating thing for me, and I watched it, and I would show it to all my other friends, and, oh and my it was God. sacred. Anyhow, I'm going to, like, let you... No, no, I'm, I'm so into that, <laughs> because mine was so different. Like, mine, like, the film that, like, unlocked, like, my erotics was The Dreamers, which I think is a lot of people's movie, but, like... Louis Garrel in that movie was like the sexiest thing to me. But the thing that turned me on in that movie, that I tell people all the time, and they're like, "Wait, that's so weird." But I was like, "I don't know." There's a scene where they're talking about Maoism at the um, in like the movie La Chinois, and there's like a huge Mao poster, and he uh, and Louis Garrel's, and they're both. It's it's been raining outside. They've run back right. in the rain. They're both wearing these like silk like um, house robes, which is like amazing and they're like talking and um at one point louis girl um and like they're disagreeing and louis girl grabs uh michael pitt's throat and then like slowly slides over and he puts one leg over his leg and like they're the, his crotch is kind of touching his butt and i remember that was the thing that i would rewind over and over and over again because i thought it was so hot but and, and it always sucks because ava green comes in and she's like boys what are you doing and i'm like god damn it why did she come in and ruin that oh my god I have a cra can I like get can we like go out of this conversation? I'll tell you a crazy fucking story. Oh, what is it? So when I was like nineteen or twenty, I hung out there was like this guy, he like befriended me. His name was David Greenberger. And he like 
he like wanted to hook up with me, but he also like wanted to impress me. And like he brought me to this guy named Joe Smith's house. And like Joe was this like guy who must have been like 65. And he was like from Georgia. And he like lived in this like loft, like around 20th Street. And like everything was like like maroon and like they covered all the windows. And it was like so weird. And we'd go there and like smoke pot. And it was just like, wow, we could go there and hang out with this guy. So there were like all of these like like weird like things happening because there was like all these like young gay dudes who were like somehow messing around with Joe and there was one how old were you at the time? I was like twenty one or no twenty. Okay. And like Joe was like really cool. And actually Joe lent me money to buy a video camera and I like paid him back. But I like I'm gonna tell you how, like when I paid him back, it's so crazy. But basically there was this one kid that Joe had had some kind of relationship with who started poisoning him with rat poison. And what? he started poisoning. So the whole why, thing was so like, like why did you like get money? To or? get money from him. And he started poisoning him with rat poison. And then one night me and Mike Pitt had to take care of him. And I remember Mike Pitt being on the phone, he's like, Joe's dying. <laughs> like it was just like talking to someone, like, what are you doing tonight? It's like, I'm at Joe's house, he's dying. And I'm just like sitting here, like, what the fuck is going on? And I had this like super awkward night, like eat, eating sushi with like Mike Pitt. And then I remember like stuffing. I'm like, Joe, I'm paying you back for this camera. And I'm like giving him money and like putting it in this like dying man's <laughs> pocket. And yeah, it turned out he was someone with poison was was trying to kill him with rat poison. It was so weird. Was the guy like in a will? Like how was he going to get money? I have no idea. But there was like all of these like spooky narratives going around. It was found out. One. It became clear yeah. It happening. was so weird. Anyhow, like I sat there with. Whenever I hear about Mike Pitt, I just remember this like weird traumatizing night with this like, you know, middle aged man who was being, you know, he was like Actively peeing poisoned. on himself. Anyhow, later, Joe actually died in what is that, like Bellevue Hospital, a couple of years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago. Whoa. And he became, he lost his apartment, lost everything. He just like had all of these people around him using him. It was like really, really creepy and That's weird. really insane. It was so weird. It was like right across from that magic store, Abracadabra. Oh, yeah, sure. Anyhow. <laughs> well, I'm really interested in like this like moment when you were like this twink running around. Because I feel like the thing that always happens whenever I talk about you, people are like, oh, yeah, it's so weird. I met him. He's not gay, right? It's He feels gay. And I'm always like, I don't oh, know. I'm like... I actually like I am a little actually gay. I would like admit. What is a little actually gay? I mean, I like everyone's queer for clout now. I'm not <laughs> I would say it's queer for clout, but like I have like I have like hooked up with guys and I have like vibed with guys, but like for the most part I uh I mostly date women. That's yeah. like what I really really love women in a way that I don't or haven't had access to men at mm -hmm. this point. Mm -hmm. Um but you know, I'm kind of like I'm I'm kind of open, but but women like gay adjacent. Yeah, I would say so. But at the same time, it's that I grew up with a passive father, and I grew up with three sisters, and I grew up really insecure and not like good at sports and not all these things. And I just like don't like straight guys that much. Even as a straight guy, I'm just like. I feel like anxious around you. Mm. Like I feel like, whoa, are we like competing? Like blah 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 blah. It's like, and I always found from the from. It's interesting. Yeah. I always just found that like, I just appreciated 
my gay friends so much more. And I have always had this huge sense of being like an outsider. And I think I really related, especially in high school, to my friends who were gay. It's so weird because I have the exact opposite feeling. I like, I I get so, I'm like, I'm, I'm living on Fire Island right now for these two weeks. And I was just like, do I hate men? Like, I was like, I, I had like, I mean, I grew up with just my mom and my sister and my grandma. And, you know, my papa was there. But my papa was like very, um, it was my grandfather. Um, He's very, uh, he was like a man of the, of, of the 50s and 60s. He like. Does he does he wasn't forth forthcoming with like any emotions, emotions and I um didn't like that part of him so I like actually like built up a like sort of personality and defiance of that because I wanted to be more like my mom like who's charismatic and fun and like and so anyway and when I'm around a big group of gay men I see so much maleness that like I'm just like I can't and I actually sort of now prefer these sort of like passive or even some not even just the passive I actually I because like I found my voice in like straight spaces like I was like there was a club in Chicago called the underground and when I was 18 years old I like heard about it because I worked at Barney's and there were all these women would come in and be like oh, we're going to the underground which is like it was like the hip club and I was like I want to go to the underground so I got in like my best outfit I showed up and like they didn't ID me because I was tall and then like I started going there and like the the straight dude that ran the club was like you are cool you will have a bottle here anytime you want to come here. So I was like, great. So I became like a per- a personality there, and like then like uh, like and straight men like liked me because like women liked me, right? Because like I w- could talk to any girl, and so like all these straight guys just sort of like had me as like a honeypot for these girls, and I learned in a very short amount of time like how to hang out with straight dudes, how to talk to straight dudes, and how like and it's just like straight dudes with money. It was like a thing. And so like l- like even now when I like think about like my my manager and like the executives that like I'm working with in like movie stages, I'm like, oh yeah, like I've literally never worked on a, like my agent's gay, but like none of the men who've been like, I want to do something with you, like let's do it right now, have ever been str- have ever been gay. They're all straight. And like I'm like, oh my God, like this person's like my dad. And it's like probably some deep seated daddy issues for me that I have to work out. But I prefer I don't know. I have this like this deep um, joy being around like a bunch of dudes um, th- that like are that aren't trying to fuck dudes. Yeah, yeah. Because I think when I, like even at that party we went to that night, I was just like I would rather sit outside and smoke and talk to Jordan right. than like be inside with all these shirtless men. Yeah, who, like look at each other like meat. Yeah, there's a competi- I mean the competitiveness competitiveness you're talking about is of course a sort of straight competitiveness that makes you uncomfortable, Jordan. And of course that same thing. You, yeah. you have a completely different. If you look at if you're interacting with straight guys, it's completely different. That competitiveness yeah. is then off the table, right? It's a completely different. Completely. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing is, like, if I'm like into a guy, like I'm into like other straight guys like me. Yeah. I'm not into like effeminate men. Yeah. That's not like who I'll cr- be crushing it's so on. Interesting. Yeah, it's so weird, and it's almost like it kind of goes back to that porn you're talking about. It's like that's my trauma. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's my trauma. But you know what's interesting? It's like you know. Just, I think we have to touch upon this, is that, like, Jeremy, you're, like, making this art form that's, like, predominantly, like, witnessed by, like, Jewish, you know, like, monogamous couples over the age of 60. Can you, like, talk about, like, what that's like? Uh, it's fucking annoying. Um, I mean, I'm excited by like intergenerationality. Like, I'm like really interested in like being in a conversation with like a 60 year old about my play or an 80 year old about my play. Like, one of the best like things that was said about my play was said by my thesis play recently was said by my friend's like 87 year old like uh, 
art. Like he, he met this woman who was like about to fall in the street, and then he was like, "Oh, you can't be out like this." She's like, "What are you talking about?" And I go out every Tuesday night to see a play, and he was like, "He was like, well, someone should be with you. Like you shouldn't go by yourself." She's like, "Well, my husband died, so do you want to come?" And now they go to see plays together, and she's amazing. And they like, met just on the street. They met on the street, wow. like because he's like he's like you know such a gentleman, and he's like Catholic, and so he was like a lady fell, <laughs> and he like went and helped her. Anyway, she came to see my thesis play, and she was like, "It was fabulous. It was this. It was that." And she had the, she had the best thing to say about my thesis play than anyone else. But working in the theater, the thing that sucks is that like I um I want I theater is run by people who are also like of that ilk or generation. Like baby boomers run the theater, not just in the audiences, but like mm. in behind the scenes. And like every other industry, I think the baby boomers are trying to like actively kill us by like just not being like okay, like maybe let's let some new ideas come in, you know. So I think that for me, I see it. But I also like obstacles. And so I think that, like, the whole reason I started writing plays with, like, a sort of fury and fu- was because all of my friends were like, plays don't really, like, plays don't make sense. Like, why would you want to do a play? Like, it's all for old Jewish people or it's all for this type of person. Like, and I was just like, well, no, like, plays can be for you. Like, have you seen this? Have you seen that? And they're like, no, never heard of it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want to make plays that my friends will fucking come see and, like, and, like, we can, and we'll, like, make theater cool again, <laughs> you know, like, um, not to be Trumpian about it. And um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, if it's a, it's a, it's a thing that I think other people feel more displacement for of in the audience than I do. Like, I think other people who are peers have had like um, really violent responses to having to sit in a room with the plays I've been writing specifically and see like a sea of white like white hair around them, um, white hair that's also connected to white faces. And like, they're like, like they're laughing at that. Like, that's a weird thing to be laughing at. And like, I'm laughing at this and this is like a thing that they should be laughing at, but they're not like, mm. what is going on? They have this like, and I get off on that, like that dis, dis, that disruption. Cause again, something's happening to bodies, right? But I think that um, I'm really I'm starting to get really interested in ways to like fuck with that moving forward. So like when Slave Play goes on Broadway, like one of the things we're trying to do is like we want to have one night where we just ha- in, like, where we where we get someone to buy out the entire theater and have like a night where it's just black audience members. Like we have a fully black night because I've also like only ever been to like one play that was all black and it was a Tyler Perry play. What are the demographics when you put it when Slave Play was up? I mean, did you see how was the audience very mixed? Oh well, so people. The thing that's funny is that people who who are unaccustomed to going to the theater were like, this was really white. But people who were coming to the theater, like Tony Kushner was like, this is the most diverse audience I've seen in a long time. And this was like, I because like we worked really, really hard on getting like people under 30 and like black and brown people into the audience. And, and so much so that I was literally buying tickets and like just giving them to people. Wow. Like to my own place. I was like, I want to see you here. I'd give people tickets on Twitter. I'd give people tickets on Instagram. Like any way to get them there. If anyone showed like a peak of an interest and the show was already sold out, I'd like buy my own house seats and give them tickets. Um, or I got friends to buy tickets for people. Like my, I did this thing called like Rich Friends and my friend Maxwell ended up buying 30 seats during previews because um, he was like 30 seats is like basically like the price of a coat. And then, um, then and I went to a, a fancy dinner where I was supposed to like shuck and jive for some donors and I was just like hey guys also like reparations are important and so um, my friend over there is 30 he just bought 30 tickets for the show and if he can do it I'm sure all you guys can and then they were all like yeah let's do it so we had this like rich friends program so like uh, a bunch of seats were bought throughout the run that we gave out for free oh that's amazing and it was it, was, it got so many people in but I think that Demographics, there's still like a lot of work to do because it never, it won't look like an art opening. Art openings 
like th- I don't know what the community did in like 2005 to like rehab everything, but you guys made art cool. Um, and maybe it was like St. Vincent playing at MoMA or something. But like I think people just started like showing up. Well, what do you think about your audience, Jordan? Well, I'll tell you. So my audience, I think, is. Uh, I'll tell you the the audience that purchases my work are probably the same people who go to see your play. Yeah. For example, or. Adjacent, yeah, but your work in particular draws in a lot of non-buying audience members to see it, right? Because it's very experiential. And yeah, you feel when you go see the work that you have a diverse audience. I mean, I'm sort of, I wouldn't. My my gut would tell me actually weirdly not that it's mm. still predominantly white your audience. But I'm curious if you feel it's mixed. I feel it depends on where mm. it is. I think predominantly, unfortunately the art audience in New York is predominantly white. But if you go somewhere like Amsterdam, for example, or you go into you know a city in Europe and you do a show at, like a, at a city museum or a state museum, potentially you will have a more mixed audience. But it does seem... That's so wild. In yeah. Amsterdam, you'll have a more mixed audience than in New York? And also Amsterdam and Stockholm, potentially. If you, these are places where there was also a lot of like refugees yeah. living. Um, and the museum serves a different purpose, potentially. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. just fulfilling a different role. It's not, yeah. yeah. And I, re- I remember when I was installing in Moderna Museum uh, a couple months ago in Stockholm, and I was taking a little coffee break, and I, wa- I saw this, uh, like, school group, and it was, mm-hmm. like, led by this, like, Swedish white teacher, and I think there was, like, two white kids, and, like, every other kid who was beautiful was, like, wow. Asian, or they were, like... They, you know, Asian, or they were like Middle Eastern, or they were black, and it was beautiful. And I was like, "This is how the world should be." Yeah. This is how the world should be, and these are the kids who should be here. Yeah. This is the way they should be led in. Mm. Um, I was, I, I, oh, oh, I was going to ask one thing about you know looking at. You seem to have real visual art references, mm-hmm. right? Like you're talking about the art world. Obviously, there's a play in which Maplethorpe appears, yeah. Baldwin that you've written, yeah. And I've seen you at the gap. I mean, you know, sort of like, it, and you're here with an artist. I mean, in what way has the visual art world played a role for you? Is it a space for sort of freer imagining? I mean, wh- yeah. I mean, I think it's a grass is greener kind of thing. Like even just then, I was like, the art world is so diverse, right? And you guys were like, no. And I'm like, oh, cool. Um, but no, I think that I've always had this sort of I, I've been attracted to both music and visual art in a very deep way because um, those are the things you can access in Virginia. Like, really, like, you know, you don't need to go to a great museum to see, like, all the great works of art. You can, like, literally just, like, look in a book. And I think that because I had, like, an interest in things that, like, made me feel crazy, like, you know, like, anything that made me feel like, what the fuck? Um, I could only find in the art world or in the, in the and also in choreography. So, like, um... It became it became a place where I would be like, oh, okay, cool. Like I know because because like um, I love theater, but like no one. But this is a problem with the audience. This is one of the reasons I want to fix the audience, right? Like, uh, and the people who make decisions because like in the last decade, right, there have been like four, I think four, all my sons revivals on Broadway, which is like we all love Miller. Miller's great. Do we need four of them? You know, and I and yet like people that I really loved, like I could never, I I had to f- engage with their work like a museum, like a piece in the museum. So like it was like Adrian Kennedy doesn't get produced. Like Adrian is like my everything. Like if if someone could do, a fucking at a, a, a like you know a movie star only stars in black and white on Broadway, like that would be the thing that would drive me to a revival, right? Um, 
So I think that like I like and, and but yet like there, I didn't have access to like the tangible things about her work, you know, um, how it felt, how how it felt, how it smelled. But I could like watch a video of like um, I could watch like a of at uh, Adrian uh, Adrian Piper video or like right. like look at like a Lorna Simpson print and have that same sort of like textured feeling right. that I should be feeling. So it became like really easy for me to like um, make that reference. Um, because also it like um, mm. there was something that I realized that in the theater world that if I could t- it also because it's also my safety net in the theater world too is to be like um, articulate about art um, because having an articulation in in art forms or spaces that they don't made it easier for me to ex- say why I didn't want to be in the August Wilson play right because like I knew that I wanted to do like experimental theater and like maybe work downtown and so like when I was in drama school and people were like okay Jeremy here's your Corey monologue from Fences and I knew that that wasn't the kind of work I wanted to do, I'd, I would just be like, okay, cool, like I'm gonna do this, but I'm gonna do this like, uh, I saw Ralph Lemon do this one dance, so I'm gonna be twirling the entire time I'm doing it. And they were like, what, this is realism. And I'm like, this is my realism, you know? Um, and then my defense would always be like, you don't know art, you know? And, right, right, and right. so, I don't know, I think that it, it's, it was a safety blanket for me because also I wasn't doing the assignment. Right. Um, but it also was where I was able to see myself because also blackness and brownness are refracted in more exciting, or represented, I think, in more exciting ways in the visual art world because there's just been more license for us to be like, you know, you see William Popel and like you're like, oh, or see Popel and you're like, oh, like that's, like this is the abject blackness that I feel. Mm. It's not a sort of beautified blackness that I don't feel connected right. to or sort of like, um, respectable blackness that I don't feel connected to. You know what's interesting about that is like it's like you're piggybacking on art because it like provides you with like a kind of like agency and a kind of freedom. And for me, I feel that way about my friends uh, who are writing fiction. Oh wow. Because it's like there was always that sense where it was like with an artist where it's like if you do this, this and this, you're basically telling us you are this, this and this. And I'm like, no, I'm like trying to approach this as like a kind of author of fiction. Right. Yeah. And like, of course, there's parts of me in here. How could there not be? But this isn't me. Yeah. But I feel you also have looked at strategies in other art forms. I mean, for example, the theater. I mean, I think when I look at your work, even if it's not conscious, right, there's a real sense of sort of audience performer dynamics. Um, there's an awareness of what it means to be looked at as an audience member, right? I mean, your kind of real interest in the visual. Yeah, and then, but, and then but mostly, liter- really, honestly, it's really a just, just, it's really about tight observation of myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I've really just, it's been a kind of really, sm- like, a, actually a kind of small world for me, and I've just been observing like, how, like, just being conscious and, like, mindful of my experience of witnessing and how to, like, reaccess that witnessing. But that really cool thing you said about, like, how does how does that um, interact with the thing you said about like a, a gallery being like a stage that the audience is on? Like, yeah. I thought that was so beautiful. Yeah. So how does that interact with that? And like, what does that stage mean to you then? If it's like less, if it's more about, does, does that make sense? Yeah, it's like this idea. It's like this idea of like the hack of suspension of disbelief potentially. Mm. That the gallery's less good at it, or no, it's just different. It's just different, and it's almost like when I think about it, like I have this like rule about like no tricks, yeah, like no tricks, no illusions, like you see it, yeah, like it's just like I just like have this thing, like I remember like like looking at um, the these Rodin sculptures outside of the Norton Simon Museum in Pasadena, and it's like. You see them and then you walk around them to a certain point and then you get access to your body looking at them. Mm. 
or you, for example, like the best example of any sculpture viewing is Michelangelo's David, mm. where more or less 90, 90% of all the angles you look at it is like a kind of A plus body experience. Yeah. And actually you can find a couple angles that aren't great. And I did. And it's really interesting. And it's really interesting, this idea of access, right? Because people people are actually, this all of these things, like all the content and all this and all that and all the flashing lights and whatever, it all just comes back, comes down to like, how do you get like, into that like state of body and through the state of body open to a state of presence where like one witnesses like presence with a kind of indifference. And when I say indifference, I'm not talking about like a hostile indifference. If yeah. anything, I'm talking about like an indifference that is observational. Right? observational. Yeah. But like, if like even through the act of love, we witness indifference. Mm -hmm. Like we witness indifference for like, if you love someone so much, you for, a moment in your intensity of your love for them, you see them. Mm -hmm. And so it's like this idea of seeing yeah. and this idea of witnessing and like witnessing through love and witnessing love and like love is a portal to like witness and, and this, potentially this, transgression is a portal to witness. And then one could argue and describe the different qualities and differences of these. I mean, what's interesting is it's also a bit of like, it's almost like a suspension of wanting in the moment. You know what I mean? When you talk about that calm observational quality, mm -hmm. but it's, you get there through a sort of explicit exploration of desiring, of being sort of manipulated, of being into, you know, whatever it is that forces you to step back and actually for a moment not want a message, not want meaning, but somehow feel, like you said, embodied or sort of in the moment. I love this sort of meditative relationship to like, not just making, but like, as you're saying, like witnessing. So I think that that is the sort of drug that happens in great theater, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? You're able to like go to the space of like pure, and just like wit witness, uh, like I feel like this, everyone's gonna be like, okay guys, we get it, witness. But um, but no, it's it's really, it's stunning. And I, it made me think about like all the types of things that I don't like. And like, and I think the, what like where does rage in viewing or witnessing come into play for you? Cause I think, cause like I, I always think about like things that are like, Productively bad and like in non and like not productively bad. Like you know, it's like I, I have this whole thing about n white nonsense and how like um, there's like productive white nonsense and unproductive white nonsense. So like productive white nonsense is like Bruce Nauman because like I'll be thinking about the nonsense of his of his of of his sense making for like years, you know. Um, but then like some unproductive white nonsense would maybe be like, oh God, I can't say their name. Say it. Uh, like, a, like a Whatever. Lester Duplass Brothers film, right? Like, it's like, I feel like that's... What like, is that? I don't know. Like, they're that. like mumblecore. Like, it's like, for me, it would be like, it would be like, w like that for me is unproductive white nonsense because it's just like, oh, you had some cameras in Austin and you like made some things and like, I don't know why I need to like be in awe of this like nonsense. Like, it's like not a movie. You know what I mean? It's not like Alex Ross Perry who I think like has productive white nonsense. You know, it's like this whole thing. It's about like, it's about like, um... Because uh, I have this whole thing about how, like, black people have to make sense of themselves consistently in, like, representational media. And so, like, we are denied the chance for nonsense outside of, like, music and, uh, and visual arts, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, like, you know, even, even now I think that, like, the demands on, like, young black artists to, like, be, like, perfect art. Like, the kids who are getting really popular right out of grad school in the art art program are the ones who make the most sense of blackness a lot of the times and even i like like dad i mean daddy made less sense of blackness for people than um than slave play did like slave play like told you 
what sense you needed to make of like a black body in relationship to a white body. Even with the ambiguity of it, of its ending, there still was like a sense of like, oh, I know where Jeremy stands, or I think I know where Jeremy stands in the black white debate. And so I'm like, I and and the reason why someone like Adrian Kennedy doesn't get produced is she doesn't have enough like nonsense. But I think that like I when I'm sitting inside of something, I get this rage, this rage that like is usually linked to it being productive for me because it's so bad I'm mad that I'll have to like think about all the ways it's bad for a while. I mean, you talked about really wanting to resist all virtue signaling in some way and that even when you look at other people writing and working today, telling stories, there's this attempt to kind of revisit or reconstruct or correct for mm-hmm. and that you are really sort of not interested in correcting at all. No, I mean, because I think that... Um, well, first of all, like so many people have already tried and failed, so it's like why, like why do this? And I think that what what we've seen that has worked a lot, like sort of in cultural production, is like people who who people who produce like produce things that like uh, don't dictate. You know, like 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 being didactic doesn't actually help. Never works. Yeah, it doesn't. So, and I think that like all you can be true to is like sort of like. Um, the complicated mess, because I think a complicated mess is something you stay, stay with. So, like, if you give someone a tangled knot and they're like, "Can you undo this for me?" Like, they'll be working on it for longer than if you give them a knot, like a, a rope, and, and and ask them to like tie a knot, or for tell you. them how to undo it. Exactly, exactly. Here's knot, and here's the yeah. Exactly. So I I I like people being able to because also the thing I hate about. The, the theater that tells you exactly what it is is that you see it, you get up, you clap, you might have felt something, and then you walk out and you're like, so what are we eating? Yeah, exactly. And I was just, and maybe it's because I'm kind of a narcissist and I was just like, I want someone to sit and think about me for two days, you know? Like, it's like, it's like that's for me, I think, an important thing. It's like, I want you to be thinking about this play, thinking about these ideas, sitting with it, so maybe you won't make that like microaggression the next time. Or maybe you will listen to your boyfriend differently, or maybe you will look at your son like a human, or maybe you will, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. right. Um, and I think that that's and I also like I think the dualism comes from I've genuinely I, I've become a sort of like astrological determinist um, and I am a Gemini I'm just like and I'm a rising Gemini I'm a like sun Gemini and this Taurus moon so I think and, and like Gemini's all over my chart I'm a Libra and like yeah, Libra Gemini yeah no it's a love so affair bonded. I know, I, know. A love I, I was gonna mention <laughs> that you were a Libra but I was like I don't know how he feels about being a Libra but yeah I'm a special Libra actually Why? Um, I'm an October 9th Libra and I had my chart read and they're like you for whatever reason like you're rising I don't know all the names of it but they were like you are not indecisive and I was like you're right I'm generally not indecisive wow yeah that's amazing so last maybe last kind of bigger question is what is each of you working on next I mean you mentioned Broadway maybe you just say one or two things about that what's what's happening how did it happen it's really crazy (laughs) Uh, somehow my play is going to Broadway which is really crazy Um, there were like whispers of it in December like that was like the thing like you know a big producer saw it and was like I'm gonna help you go to Broadway and then like uh, that fell through and like some things didn't happen and I was like oh that was and it was so weird it's like it's like being like and like I was really obsessed with it and I got like kind of got sad and like because like literally it was all of my Christmas break was everyone's like okay we're almost here with the theater we got this much fun we got this and I was like oh my god I'm going to Broadway while I'm in grad school this is insane and then like the minute I didn't get it I was like what and then um, because it's all about real estate and then I woke up two days later and I was like, Jeremy, you literally wrote this play to be at Abrams. Like, I literally wrote this play to be, like, in a tiny place that I was going to self-produce. It's like, you never wanted to go to Broadway. You don't like the plays on Broadway. Like, why would you go to Broadway? That's psychotic. And then... Um, and then, of course, it happened. Once we had that... Yeah. 
then once, and then like I got a call like two weeks later, like the Schubert's love you, and I was like, great. So, um, so that's going, and it's really, it's really, really exciting um, because I think the only reason to go to Broadway is to try try to do something differently, um, and I think that like because we know that. Uh, I think because we know that the play um, is already going to be a thing that's like emotionally taxing potentially because it was last time when like all of the uh, all of Black Twitter like got confused by what the play was about um, that it's I'm I'm just like let's do it in a way that I can feel proud of if whether this works or doesn't work right. so like the almost the entire cast is coming back um, we we gave an offer to everyone and um, there's some scheduling conflicts which make that more difficult which is sad and then Wait, um, can I interrupt you just for a second how does Black Twitter like react to it are they like have they actually seen it or are they speculative oh a lot of people didn't see it and like someone leaked uh, so basically the New York Times doesn't really the New York Times like comes to take a photograph for your of your play to, for like the thing and like you can't really like art direct them like I now know like the things I should should have said in that first or to the theater to like make n- clear to the New York Times but the New York Times posted a uh, posted a picture that I would have never in my life put as like the lead picture of slave play oh. as one of their lead pictures in a profile of me and then someone who really was not happy about the play leaked it to media takeout um, because the picture was of our lead actress with her tongue out and she was twerking in a slave and slave garment and a white man was behind her and the actress um, was Tiana and she's phenomenal um, but Tiana has like a really big following in the black community so media takeout which is like the Perez Hilton of the black community was like y'all see the-? actually the headline is really funny like I actually cracked up when I read the headline they're like yo there's this new play on Broadway and they got a, a little slave girl twerking for daddy like, or twerking for massa <laughs> like, like what are we gonna do about this and then everyone then I became a big thing and a lot of people were like super homophobic and like it was just like and and, and everyone kept saying it was on Broadway when we were in previews off Broadway (laughs) and so like that was like another really confusing thing and then there was like a petition and there's this woman who like saw the play like she was one of the people she was like it was disgusting she like totally misrepresented what happens in the play as well which made me say to her online like you're lying and then she posted a picture of her ticket and I was like well I guess she's not lying but she also is lying about what happens like so, Whoa. so the petition got twelve thousand signatures, and so anyway, it was and it was a lot. I got like death threats. Like my actors were really scared. So I was just like, if we're gonna go to Broadway, like let's do it like in a way that I think is understandable. Let's try to make tickets cheaper. Let's try to do like cool parties. Like we're gonna try to have like a party, a, a, a bi monthly party. Nice. Like, um, when does it happen? When is it actually going? Uh, October or October we open. September we start previews. I think. Okay, but yeah, very cool. It's really insane. That's amazing, and Jordan. We know you're cooking something up. Yeah, but, uh, um, I'm working on the third third animatronic piece. <gasps> oh shit! Yeah, does it have a name yet? Kind of, it does have a name. I'm thinking of this. T- I don't want to say it here. I'll tell you guys when we're off, we're mic. Off. But yeah, it's actually officially kicked off uh, June 21st officially, and yeah, that's what I'm doing, and that will that's what I'm doing for the next year and a half. Wow, top yeah. secrecy. Top no, secret. No leak. No leak. No leaking. Camp. No leaking. You guys, that actually. I leak the title. Top secret. Yeah, top, top, <laughs> actually, I will like. I will gush and leak off microphone. Yes. <laughs> but the, uh, yeah, it's the third animatronic. I'm really excited, and. Uh, I can say yeah. I've seen some things about it, and it's amazing. Did I send you the film I made about it? Uh, you might have. You sent me a lot of things. I watched like two of them. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'll send it to you okay. today. But yeah, and then I'm. I'm, you know, I've got this body of work about JFK Jr. that I've been doing for a year, yeah. and I'm continuing that. I'm actually making this really large hologram sculpture with uh, about JFK Jr. 
What is it about JFK Jr.? I'm sorry. It was kind of like for me. It was kind of. It's a way of like. It's like it's kind of the only way I like, like. I'm trying to look like through JFK Jr. Like it's like looking at that corner in the room to like talk about the corner just above my ear. Mm. You know. So it's like how. It's kind of like how do I talk about mm. the world without talking about the world? Right. In a way. On that note, the world talking about the world. Um, we had to talk about the world without talking yeah. about the world. Yeah, I just want to say I'm so grateful that we got to know, sit here. Amazing. I'm like, yeah. I, I I adore you, and I'm your best. I am your fan. Shut up. I support so your work. Insane. I'm such a fan, and it's like yeah. actually crazy because it's like it's also so validating. Thank you for inviting me oh, to because like I love art people. It's like you guys have better brains. There's nothing for me. There's nothing better. Like it like like for me like all the success like for me is just about knowing other creative people yep. that's where I, yeah. I feel so much i'm so grateful to be where i am because i get to get access to people like jeremy i'm and, so excited and spend time with him yeah i have a real question yeah. for you cuz like, i um it's i'm thinking about doing something differently soon like mm-hmm. I, I think i want to write a novel mm-hmm. and i was wondering like what like you seem to have like a brain that jumps around a lot too but you've you've stayed pretty like in the art lane yeah i have what what other like what other space of creation might you go to if you were to go to i like, had hollywood you know hollywood knocked and yeah. invited me they've come around but i'm kind of like I really asked myself like why I would do it, and I think like I, I for a while I was just like, oh, I'm in LA, and I just like I want to feel like important in Los Angeles, and I was like, that's not a good reason to yeah. like work in this field, like yeah. And I'm just like really interested in sculpture, wow, and art, yeah. And it's like I kind of just accept that it's like a small field, you know. And I'm like, yeah, but it's just like I'm like a really obsessed with art. Yeah. And I kind of surrender to it. It's just yeah. like whatever. It's like I'm taking out ambition. I'm just like inserting intention. Mm. And that's where it's leading me, you know? I love that. Yeah. That's really lit. All right. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you, really Lucas. Fun. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.